0: Today, I, I'm doing things, I'm going to have a rabbit trail. What about that? Such a surprise. I want to talk about finding rest. This is from 1 John chapter 2. We, we studied 1 John about three years ago or so, but one of the things that I thought about is that um, where we're at, we're, we've been studying the book of John, we've been in this series on the book of John, and where we're at in the book of John, this is a good place now to, to speak about this, because what I want to say is in the book of John, one of the things we saw in these first few chapters is that... Jesus is coming, and we saw what kind of people are important to God and we saw it, it was it was at Nicodemus, a member of the sanhedrin, and Jesus was what talked to him and, and it was somebody way up, and then it was somebody very low and then, and then it was somebody that all the Jews hated uh, 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 somebody involved with the Roman government and all those and Jesus is m- meeting all these people, talking to all these people, and we talked about that what is he doing he 's breaking down walls he 's breaking down barriers. He's breaking down cultural barriers. He's breaking down barriers that are based on status. He's breaking down ethnic and racial barriers. He's breaking down gender barriers. He was just doing everything to show what God originally told his people back in the first, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible I treat everyone the same. God made that clear to the children of Israel. I treat everyone the same. So don't you put this person up and this person down. Don't you treat any of them different. I treat them all the same. And then we have the extension of that as we come into the New Testament, where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, barbarian versus or Scythian, which he chooses two of the things that could have been the worst things they could have imagined. I mean, Scythian uh, in our day would be maybe Isis. Just something horrific type of a thing. And he's showing God treats everyone the same. Now, in that last week, we kind of touched on this problem that has had crept in. And it was this problem of legalism, this problem of feeling like I have to earn my way. I have to earn this. I have to earn uh, uh, getting to God. I have to earn God's good graces. And, And I mentioned how easy that can creep into us even when we believe in grace and 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 how God's grace is just shed on us for free. It can creep in. And it shows itself oftentimes when we mess up. And when we mess up, we start to beat ourselves up and we get angry at ourselves for doing it. And and what are we doing? We're trying to earn back God's favor by showing God how much we can beat ourselves up. And we beat ourselves up for a while until we feel like, okay, it's safe now to go back to God. And that is so wrong biblically. There is no rest in that. Jesus talks about bringing a rest for people. There is no rest in beating yourself up. And it is unbiblical. And so we're going to talk about finding rest from 1 John chapter 2, 12-14. Now, this is the man who wrote the book of John, and he also wrote 1 John. He wrote 1 John as like a pastor. In the book of John, he's writing as, in a sense, John the evangelist. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he did. Here's the claims he made. Here's, here's the, all the scriptures he fulfilled from, from the Old Testament. Now he's writing as, as John the pastor. And I want to read it to you. Uh, I'm just going to read it. You can just listen. It's only only three verses. I write to you dear children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you dear children because you have known the father. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now I'm guessing that a good half of this group of people here is right now going, hold on, who is he writing to here? Because I heard children, young men, and fathers. I didn't hear young women and women, right? Mothers, I didn't hear that. So that's the elephant in the room. I want to address that. What's going on here? is that John is writing as a pastor. He's writing here. It's, it, essentially, this is a rabbit trail. This is why I do rabbit trails, because I want to be biblical. John's writing a little rabbit trail. He's been writing this, and he interrupts with three lines of basically kind of like poetry. They're very symmetrical, and, and he's interjecting this because he wants to reassure his readers, uh, give them some reassurance on their rest in Christ and how that happens. All right, so he's reassuring his flock. He's trying to encourage them. And what does he say? He says, two times children, two times young men, two times father. But we have to understand how language works, how writing worked in those days. Not in our days, in those days. Because here John is not talking to specific people. What he's talking to are types of people. He's talking about stages of life. He's been teaching them that their walk with Christ is a process and now he's going he's to talk about the whole process from child to adult to parent, all the different phases of that. And now we're in a world where they would say, just like this, they would say to young men, but they mean everyone. They would say to fathers, but they mean to all parents. He's talking about levels of maturity, child, young, elder, or older. We do this sometimes. I do this. I catch myself doing it all the time this morning. Some of you walked in, and I said, hey, guys, welcome. But you weren't all guys. And, and ga- you guys is kind of a northern way of saying y'all, right? It doesn't, uh, it's not attaching any kind of gender. It's just saying you people. And maybe I should say, hey, you people, but that would sound, right? I don't know. So here, John's not talking to fathers. He's talking to elders, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers. He's reassuring his readers, And it's all, and he's just saying, I write this because, I write this because. So we get three important ideas here about living for God, about, he's already been talking about this, about walking in the light. And part of this is his effort to reassure them that their foundation is strong, right? So the first thing he's going to say is he's going to say you have a secure foundation. Now, the three truths here all correspond with maturity. They're all remembering, and we have to remember this, they're all remembering that a life of following Christ is a process it's a process it's not bam and you're suddenly this mature person it's a process and there are three truths here first one is you have a secure position i want you to sh- i want to show you this he says i write to you dear children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name the second one is the same verse in the new american Standard translation, which is, which is very probably the most literal translation you can get. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. See, in the Greek there, it's not past tense. Your sins have been forgiven. It has a sense of the past tense, but what it means is it comes right on through. So your sins were forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and your sins... Are forgiven in the future. They're all, so in a sense, it was all done in the past, but they, he wants you to see that the results of that continue on for the whole process, for your whole life. Your sins are forgiven. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the sins you are going to do are already forgiven. It's taken care of. And so when you are certain, When you are certain that your sins are permanently forgiven, that gives you assurance, that gives you encouragement, especially in difficult times, especially when I sin. It encourages me in those times where I screw up, where I sin, where I fall short. This is forgiven, right? Because when do I need the most encouragement? When I sin, when I screw up, when I hurt people that I love, I'm depressed, I'm humiliated, I'm ashamed of myself. And there's a certainty here. Now, notice in that verse, the certainty. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, he's using financial terms. He's saying there's an account that we can draw from. And there's a number of theological words that, that, that are used for this, but just shorthand, it means that Christ has put his righteousness in our account so that we can draw on it. So that it becomes ours especially in the difficult times. And so when it says on account of his name, this word has this meaning of value. The Greek word that's used means it's a value. It means it's the primary cause. It means it's the source of power. We struggle oftentimes with feeling like there's a lack of power in our life. And he's saying, here's where the source of power is. It's on account of his name. And see, we often confuse things. What do we do? When I think, I think oftentimes I can think that I'm forgiven because I repented. People mistakenly think that, that having this great sorrow when they've sinned, it shows their repentance is real and it gains them forgiveness. But see, this verse assigns a value not to repentance. See, it's the forgiveness. If it assigned the value to forgiveness, it would say uh, that we would get this on account of my repentance. But, but that's not what it says. It says we get it on account of his name. That's the value that it draws from. That's the account it draws from. That's where we get it. Now, we do need to repent. This is a biblical concept. But when we repent, we draw on the value of his account, not our account. When you think you need to beat yourself up, this is what John's telling us. When you think you need to beat yourself up, you need to humiliate yourself because you've done something that's so bad and you can't understand why you did it and you hate yourself for doing it and you get depressed because you did it. And you think, ugh. And then after a while, you feel like, okay, I've been miserable long enough. God, forgive me, and then I'll move on. Somehow we think I have, my misery has equated to God saying, oh, wow, you've worked so hard. Okay. No. He's saying, no, you got it from the beginning. It doesn't mean you don't, don't repent. But who repents perfectly? Right? Let's face it, every parent here who's had children know that at least half the time your kids repent is because they got caught. It's not that they're sorry that what they did was wrong. It's they're sorry they got caught. And repentance can have mixed motives, even in our lives as adults. We can have an imperfect attitude. And so, so then what we're saying is, what is enough repentance to activate the forgiveness what is the line that needs to be crossed before we can, we can say, okay, I can rest in this forgiveness? How do I know what is enough? And so then, you know, we get discouraged. We wallow in sorrow and shame until we feel like we've crossed some kind of line, and then we come back to God, and fellowship is restored. Let me give you an illustration of this. We used to have a dog. Our dog's name was, it was, it was actually my daughter Holly's dog, but it was our dog. You know what I'm saying? She claims she owned it, but she didn't do much, right? Now, every once in a while, we would come home, not very often, but every once in a while. His his name was George W. That's a whole nother story. Um, But every once in a while, we would come home, and I'd open the door, and there would be George W. (gasps) Like this. Like, oh, isn't that sweet? Let's give the dog a hand. No, let's not. He would look like that. And I know right off, okay, he's done something. He's done something. But then, just like uh, parents, if you remember when your kids were little and they had done something, maybe they grabbed something over here they shouldn't grab, they're like, no, I didn't grab that. I did that. I did I did. it. And their eyes would look over. They just can't hide it. They give it away, right? That's what George would do. He'd be sitting there going, hmm, 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 hmm. And I go, okay, I know approximately where to feel for the wet spot. And then I go over and I feel on the carpet and I go, oh, George. And oh, he would just slink over, crawl underneath the dining room table and hide. Right. And I'd come out and I'd pat and I'd clean it up and clean it up and, and, uh, and get about done. And I go, Come on, buddy. Come on. Come on. And he'd start coming out like, oh, it's all good. Right. Like I've been miserable. So now we're done. So now we're done. And see, this is what we can do. We look at the quality of our repentance. We think, how bad do I feel about this? I don't feel bad enough yet. And we look at our feelings, and we say, I'm so miserable. And see, that's why we get anxious and discouraged. That's because you can never do enough. You can never be sure. You never know where the line is because we can't do it. We can't repent enough. This is the beauty of Christianity, It's not based on how we repent. It's based on the fact that an account has been given to us that we can draw upon. Why can we be certain on account of his name, for his name's sake? And this speaks of God's character. This speaks of who he is and what he's done. Because it's on account of his name. And a name is a huge thing. A name was huge in in 1 Samuel. David says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Whom you have defied. I come to you in a name. And God says, your forgiveness, you can draw upon that on account of his name. On account of his name. And so... In 1 John, let me just, 1 John 2, 1 and 2, just the beginning part of this chapter we're looking at, he says, dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. See, repentance receives righteousness. Repentance does not merit righteousness. It simply is the act of drawing on the righteousness. How much righteous, How much repentance Do you need any repentance? Just repenting draws upon that righteousness. You're forgiven on account of his name. And things may be going well right now, and that's great. But when things get really tough, you will need this when you're really feeling bad about something, when you've really screwed up badly, you will need this because you will want to give in to that form of legalism that was prevalent too even in the days of Jesus that says you got to beat yourself up. for, And, and we see it today. We see it today. Not too long ago, I remember seeing, marching down some, some uh, followers of a particular uh, religion, beating themselves with whips, self-inflicting pain, cutting their backs to show God how much they repented. And God's saying, that's not enough. It cost a life. That's what it cost. So that's not enough. You can just find forgiveness on account of his name. And so, when you're forgiven on account of his name, to try to work up some sort of proper humility or proper shame for forgiveness insults God. Because even though it feels humble, even though it sounds humble, if I'm beating myself up, what am I really saying? I'm saying, God, I got this. I got this. I appreciate your sacrifice, but I need to do this. And then what does it become? It's all about me. It's all about me and what I do. And he's saying, no, that's not how it works. Don't devalue his name. Your position in Christ is secure because of his namesake, on account of his namesake. So you have a secure position. Secondly, you have a power within you. See, remember, John now is writing to his flock, and he's saying, I want to encourage you. There is a security in this. There is a rest in this. This is important. And this is when he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, it, I just want to talk a moment about the evil one. Uh, what, biblically, what is he talking about? He's talking about, he's talking about and throughout the scripture, Satan. It's this idea that there is a living evil in this world. And, and scripture, generally speaking, has two words, two words for wickedness. Kakos is a word that simply means evil, uh, generally speaking, in the abstract. And then poneros is the idea of an evil that is an active opposition to good. It's fighting, right? So that you could say, uh, kakas man is a person who uh, is just going to perish in his own corruption. He 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 just is going to be evil. He doesn't care, and that's what he does. But a poneros man or woman seeks to drag others down. Seeks to pull others into his ultimate down, her ultimate downfall. So you see the difference in the words? Here the word is paneros. It is this idea that there is an evil in this world that is seeking to drag people, seeking to pull people to their doom. Um, there's a great old word for that. It's called, uh, the word is called pernicious. It's a pernicious evil. It means an extreme evil that won't stop corrupting those around it. So how are we strong you know, often in Scripture, we're, we're taught Scripture, uh, the Spirit and the Word are always working together, or oftentimes are used simultaneously, interchangeably. Uh, the, the, the Spirit is the comforter, the one who leads us to the truth uh, that is in the Scripture. So in Ephesians 5, he says, allow the Spirit to work in your life, to, to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, to sing, to be thankful. Allow Scripture the, allow the Spirit to push you to that. In Colossians 3, he says almost the same things, but says allow the Word to do that. We're told we're born by the Spirit, and we're told we're born by the Word. So there's this interchangeability that, that, that comes, um, um, and, and it is inside of us. First Peter says it's, we're partakers of the divine nature. And so what's my point here? Well, these are eternal things. They're true. And when you become a Christian... Scripture tells us, what does God do? In a sense, he implants, he makes you new. DNA type of a change. His spiritual DNA. You are regenerated. And now there is a power. And it's keyed to who he is. And it begins to change you. We've talked about this before. When we make that decision, it begins to change us. And it's a process. There can be sudden jumps. There can be dips but it is a process that happens in our lives. And different people, oftentimes, the process happens at a different pace than others. And we're we're so quick to judge. We see somebody who's struggling with something, and we tend to think, oh, that's terrible that they're struggling with that because I'm not struggling with it. But maybe there's something else they do very well that I'm struggling with, and I don't judge myself that way. So we have to understand it's a process, a process that's going on in our lives. The Spirit of God is in you. You share something with God. And the Word, it says, abides in you. And the Spirit uses that to illuminate in your life things that you should not be doing, things that are wrong, things that are sin. And he's telling him, because of that, you are now strong, young men. He says to him, young people, in essence, you are strong. Why? Because you have this power in you. Peter calls it an imperishable seed. That means it's growing. So even if you struggle with things that seem to be impossible to change, he's saying never give up. Don't say this will never change. We may feel that way, but that's not the truth. We may may think we never change, but that's when we forget the Spirit is in us and we are devaluing his power. So confess and keep going. This is what John has been telling them. Confess and keep going. Don't quit. See, Christianity is not about hoping for forgiveness. It is having the forgiveness. It's not deciding to do things better, to be a better person. It's, something, it's not something that comes from the outside and shapes us. It's inside us. It's messing with your code. It's messing with your DNA, spiritually speaking. So you're changing fundamentally at your core. And let's face it, that's the only change that works right? Look, you can go someplace. You can get a job that requires you to dress a certain way and wear certain clothes and do all of that, and you look really good. But it's the same you, right? As parents, we can discipline our children, but what's going to change their heart? That's the key. Only God can do that. And I know right now we're gonna have we're gonna have a baptism of some people who are saying God's changed my heart. But I know right now there there'll be so many people here that would say yes, God has changed me fundamentally, from the inside out, and I'm one of them. I was going a certain way, God intervened in my life, and I'm going a totally different way. I turn back sometimes. I look longingly sometimes. I know that's wrong. But I've been fundamentally changed. My life is different, and this is what it means. Because being a Christian means life often gets messy simply because you're a Christian. But it is not your power. The circumstances of your life are not the power over you anymore. You're strong, he says. Often we forget the power that we have, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God. Here's the third thing. He says you have a relationship with God now. He says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. You have a relationship. It's very interesting how Scripture, in Scripture, how God relates to us, all the way from the very beginning, all the way from the book of Genesis, how God relates to his people. He relates as a father. He relates as a mother. He relates oftentimes as a sibling. He relates as a spouse, as a lover. It's just so many different ways that God shows so many facets to this relationship because there's talking to him. There's listening to him. There's loving him. There's sharing. There's crying together. There's laughing together. There's anger. Every relationship has all of these things if it's a relationship worth having. But relationships take time to develop. Talking to God, listening to God. As as I've gotten older, I see this relationship aspect more and more in my life. And God is saying, look, these are the stages, this is the process they often overlap. But all three of these things, you have a secure position. You are secure. You have this incredible well of forgiveness to draw upon. You didn't earn it, and you can't earn it now. You just accept it. You say, God, I'm sorry, and I thank you for your forgiveness. The other day, just something I did, just hurtful, and just confessing it and saying, God, the only thing I have is your grace and your forgiveness that you give me. That's all I have. Otherwise, I'm terrible. Left to my own devices. I'm hopeless and I'm helpless. Just like when Jesus, we just studied this a few weeks, when Jesus was talking to the Samarian woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well, what did he do? He pointed her to her helplessness. He made sure she understood. She had no no place else to go. No place else to go but to finally go to other people and say, you think, I think that's the Messiah. That's the Messiah we've been looking for. So, in this process, oftentimes, like a child, we can focus on ourselves because in, in this process, at points, we are the child that he speaks of. When our kids were little one night, one of our kids, Cody, he couldn't sleep. Cody was about five years old, I think. And um, he couldn't sleep. So we were all asleep. And so he got up, got out of bed, came into our bedroom, and went up and stood next to me. But, I mean, he stood like, I was sleeping like this, and he stood like this far from my, yeah, you see a disaster waiting to happen, right? Like, boom, oh, oh sorry, son. So so I had this weird feeling. I, you know, I just had this weird feeling that something was up and there's something wrong, right? There's something not the way it's supposed to be. So I just slowly and I was just like, you know, I said, what? What? And he's like, Daddy, I can't sleep. I'm like, man, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I almost killed you. <laughs> I just and 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 what was he doing? He he's he was totally thinking about himself. It didn't occur to him that there was a thing called cardiac arrest that he could have inflicted upon me, right? It, that, that didn't occur to him. See, and he just, he just knew he couldn't sleep. And he knew that either me or, or my wife, he knew one of us was the answer to this problem. You know, it didn't occur to him that he was disturbing us. It didn't occur to him that I was going to have so much adrenaline in my body that now for the next two hours, I can't sleep because of that little rug rat, Right? But he's a kid, and that's the way we are sometimes as kids. It's just kind of about us. Now, what did I say? I said, you idiot. You don't wake us up and wear it. No, no. I said, buddy, buddy, listen. Okay, it's okay, but next time, announce yourself. Knock on the door. Let us know you're in the room. Now, let me help you get back to sleep, you know? So I walked him back in his room, you know, and I told him a little story, and he was out pretty quick. And then I'm in my bed, you know, go, glug, glug. you know, like that. Yeah. But see, my relationship with him, this is that relationship, my relationship with him dictates my response and my willingness to put up with his shenanigans. Because he's my boy. I love that kid. I love him. And so I'm okay with this. I'm okay that he frightened me. You know, I'm okay with this because I love him so much. This kind of stuff happened, we, we, we've seen it. We see it all the time in the Bible. We see what the disciples were doing all the time. Disciples saying, hey, keep those kids away from Jesus. Little bother, little tricycle motors, they're a problem. Leave them, uh, get them out of here. And Jesus is like, no, you dopes. Bring them to me. What's wrong with you guys? You know? And they're like, ah, Jesus, that Syrophoenician woman, she's bothering us. Could you please tell her to leave? And Jesus is like, no, I want to talk to her. Let her speak, Right? The disciples was like, Jesus, it's a big storm. We're going to sink. Don't you care? He's like, oh, ye of little faith. Now let's address this issue. Over and over and over, like children. This is a part of the process. And thank goodness it's a part of the process. Because he understands when we're that way. Because he loves us. He had patience with them. He has patience with us. When we screw up, when we walk in the room and, you know, Frighten frightened Jesus. That doesn't work out. I don't know what I was thinking there. He's like, and I, this is my favorite. I, and I, I do this a lot. I know, but I just use my imagination and I imagine God in heaven. And, and, and there's all these angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, and there's all this craziness and beautiful and singing. And it's just an inglorious experience. And I'm down here and I'm going, God, my car won't start. Right. And, uh, um, God says in heaven, he says, hey, 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 everybody, fellas, shh, 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 My son, Bob, wants to talk to me. And, and I think scripture is clear. God talks to us. It says, it talk, we, talks him, we talk to him, we talk to him in prayer. It's like a face-to-face experience. He gets down on one knee. So he's right in line with me. And he says, what is it, son? My car won't start. I don't know what's wrong with it. You changed the battery yesterday. You sure you, you sure you hooked up both terminals? Yeah. No. Oh man. <laughs> you know, and then and and I pour out my heart to him and he deals with it whether it's a little kid thing like that or whether it's something huge. Whether it's god my daughter has cancer. Whether it's huge. He gets down on a knee, he gets face to face with me. He says, "Tell me about it. Talk to me." This is a relationship. This is a relationship we have. And, and here, John is encouraging his flock. He's telling them, you have a secure position. You are secure. You have this forgiveness that you can draw upon that is so much greater than any sin you could ever commit. He says, you have this power within you now to change. Because what happens is people look at point one and say, woohoo, go crazy. I can do anything I want. God's going to forgive me. But Paul addresses this. He says somebody who's living for Christ is not going to want to do that because that is in a sense, and he uses the phraseology, that's like a sense of trampling Jesus' blood under your feet. It's it's, it's a desecration. And so he says you have this secure position and that will make you want, number two, that you want to use this power to change. And then finally, such a huge foundation for us, You you have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And when you... Begin to talk to him, he shushes everybody else and talks to you face to face. Says, What is it, my daughter? What is it, my son? What is it? And then you can speak to him and know that he listens. And just like with my kids, sometimes when they would come up and ask me for things, you know, like, Daddy, we want to have a dollhouse that's bigger than our house. I'm like, Oh, that's so sweet. No. You know, uh, but I don't mind that they tell me that because it's what it's what's on their on their mind. They still talk to me that way. No, they don't. That was stupid. So we have a foundation. And this foundation is to encourage us and reassure us in our walk, especially and this is the key. It, you know, I probably said this is the key five times, haven't I? This is a key, especially during difficult times. That's when you need this. When things are not going the way you'd hope to go, when things are going terribly, when tragedy intervenes in your life, you need to know that you have a secure position. You need to know that there is a power within you. You need to know you have a relationship. And as you cry in the midst of your tragedy, he cries with you. He weeps with you because he sees it too. He knows the end. He knows how things may work out in a way you've never imagined. But in the moment, this is what I love about Jesus. When he went to, he, to, to raise Lazarus from the dead, he saw the Mary. He saw Martha's broken heart and he cried with them. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But in the moment, he knew this is an incredible pain. I am not going to dismiss it. I'm not going to say, oh, just you wait. I'm going to cry with them. Why? Because my heart breaks for their heartbreaking. And also because he knows ultimately there's always death, there's always loss, there's always tragedy. And so as you cry, he cries with you. As you laugh, he laughs with you. In your joyous times, he's thrilled. And in your darkest times, he's right next to you, telling you, I know, I understand. Jesus is saying, I experienced that. I know that heartbreak. I know that feeling. I know that pain. So that gives us hope. That gives us encouragement. That's just what John is trying to do here for, for his flock. It's what, what, as we look at in, in, in the book of John, as John is leading us along and showing us these are the people God cares about. These are the credentials that Jesus Christ presents as, as Yeshua Christos. and he encourages us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the the encouragement that you bring to let us know that you walk with us, you love us, you experience what we experience. You are not a remote God who does not feel what we feel, but you are a personal, relational God who we can commune with every day. We thank you for that great privilege and that foundation that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.